You are listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. If you'll go ahead and open up to John 17, we will be there later. In the sermon, it might be helpful to go ahead and get your place now. Before moving to Tennessee in 2017, I lived in Pasadena, California for several years, about three and a half. And if you've never been to L.A., um, it is quite an enchanting place. And with the freedom that singleness afforded me in that season, uh, I would often make day trips to some of its gems. I love to go to the Griffith Observatory or Malibu or Joshua Tree. Love Joshua Tree. But there was one spot that I, it was my favorite. It was a a hidden little beach area in the Laguna area called A Thousand Steps Beach. And to find it, you had to know, as you're making your way south away from Laguna, you had to know about this somewhat hidden archway. And if you went through that archway, if you found it, it would open up to this staircase that would lead you down directly to this impossibly perfect setting. And I always envision that I'm climbing through the wardrobe when I would go to a thousand steps beach waiting on the other side for this Narnian landscape. And one day I went with my buddy who was visiting and we made our way down the long staircase down to the beach. We found our spot. We put our stuff down and I told him I was going to go into the water and do some body surfing, something I had done many times before. Well, if you've been to the Pacific, you'll know that it is a more formidable force than the Atlantic or the Gulf. And after a few minutes, I realized I was being pulled out a little farther than I was comfortable with and that the tide was stronger than I had anticipated. And then I noticed something. There was a, a jetty of jagged rocks coming out from the shore and I just so happened to be going directly towards them. So I started swimming with all of my strength in the opposite direction, but the current was so strong that Despite my full exertion, I was still making my way towards this jagged rocks. And I don't know if you've ever swam with all of your strength, but even within 20 seconds, probably, I was just completely done. And now I've been swimming for over 30 years. And never in my life have I feared for my life in the water. Well, on that fateful day, that streak came to an end. And I realized that I needed something outside of myself to do what I could not do for myself. I, I needed saving. And so I put my ego to the side and I started flailing my arms to a guy in a boogie board, probably maybe a hundred feet away. And he took notice of my humble estate and he came over to me and he let me borrow his boogie board. And then of course the pomp and circumstance of a lifeguard coming out, the whole thing with the orange floaty and, and they dragged me to shore, um, and dry land had never felt so sweet. And the only thing that got bruised, which was probably a good thing, was my pride. And so what happened on that day? If we zoom out, what actually happened? The ocean didn't look dangerous. I had swam there many times before, and everything seemed normal. But what is true is on that day, there, there was a very real, though very concealed, current that was waiting to pull me towards danger, or, or to say it another way. Danger was imminent if I didn't realize from the outset that I would have to fight the drift as soon as I got in. That's what was true. 
And so I didn't know that. And so before I knew it, I was in danger. Well, last week we wrapped up our two-year journey through the gospel according to St. Luke. And before we dive into a, another book uh, in a little while, which will be James, we're going to do two short sermon series. And the first one will be over the next three weeks, and we'll be focusing specifically on as Christians living in Nashville, Tennessee in 2020 with all of the peculiar challenges we're facing right now, our need to fight the drift today to fight the ever-present spiritual riptide that leads us away from Christ and towards idolatry. It leads us away from the eternal horizon and seeks to make shipwreck of our faith. If you've been to Axis for any length of time, I know you will have heard this phrase because it's knit into our very DNA. And, and this is not just because it's a clever, tweetable quote but because it is what the word of God says. It says this over and over in the New Testament. In one place we see it most clearly is Hebrews 2.1. Now this verse begins with a therefore, which means what he's about to say is in light of what he just said. And so a bit of context, the writer of Hebrews spends the entire first chapter revealing the supremacy and the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ over all things. So he has this soaring view of Jesus Christ as the sustainer of all creation, as the savior of mankind, as infinitely superior to the angels. And it's immediately on the heels of writing this that he writes, therefore, in light of the supremacy of Christ, or for us perhaps, in light of two years in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the real Jesus, therefore, Axis Church, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Verse 3, that how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So he's not saying that they haven't caught a right view of Christ. They had. And he says, because you did, because you saw the real Jesus, therefore fight the drift. This is a sober, loving, urgent warning to Christians. We cannot coast through the Christian life. We don't just glide into glory. The, the river leading towards heaven is not a lazy river. There are riptides everywhere trying to pull us away. And how much more in these tumultuous days, as many of us find ourselves going for weeks and for some even months now, without being able to gather with the saints on the Lord's day, which is one of the essential ways God pours out his grace towards us. So this is not an insignificant threat to our souls. Sure, there's a physical virus going around, but there's also a clear and present spiritual danger going around that is just inherent to Christians being isolated from each other. And then even when we do go out, we are encouraged to mask ourselves, which adds another layer of disconnection, even being around people, because God has designed even the contours of our face, the faces that bear his image to be a way that we relate with one another. So when it's covered, we're, we're veiling part of our humanity. 
This leaves us feeling further isolated and disconnected, even amidst being around others. It's interesting. Paul uses the metaphor of unveiled faces to highlight the glory of the sanctifying work that God is doing in us in real time. He says this, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into, one, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, I, I want to be crystal clear of what I'm not saying. I'm not in any way making a political statement here on whether to mask or not mask. That's, that's not my point at all. My point is simply to say, if you are feeling off or spiritually depressed or depleted or anxious or disconnected, there are very real reasons why. I'm just putting my finger on the, the why of that. We're going through a genuinely challenging time, which impacts each of us in a really unique way. For instance, for, for mothers who feel the primary responsibility for the physical well-being of their family are getting different reports every day, sometimes conflicting on what the best process is. That's disorienting and frustrating. And then on top of that, they can't get alone time to refill their own souls. So this is the tension that we're living with. Or, or our single friends who rely on the gathering of the saints in a special way to fill their souls. It's impacting all of us in a unique way. I've seen it. I experience it. It's had its impact on me. However, Though these times are unique for us, I think there's one subtle yet detrimental way we can process what's going on. In fact, I think it might be one of these strategies of the enemy. In these times, we can get so fixated and absorbed on the uniqueness of this struggle for us that it can possibly, perhaps subconsciously, make us think our situation is outside the scope of Scripture. Like, to think the Bible is irrelevant to our actual challenges. Like, certainly they must have had challenges when Paul wrote, but this is 2020 for crying out loud, and all the things, right? And so if we're not careful, this can subtly unmoor us from a deep, rich confidence that the Scriptures are not ancient, they are eternal, and they're the truth of God for every season. I think the enemy wants to undermine our confidence in the scripture. I think as we are divided, he wants to make permanent what has been done for a season. Namely, to amputate the members from the body. Well, my topic today in this Fight, to Drift, Fight the Drift series is community and the dangers of isolation. And I want this to be a time when we as a congregation declare no to the enemy's desire to keep us fractured because we know that Jesus builds and protects his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in fact, I believe the Lord Jesus in 2020 wants to do a great sanctifying work in his church through what we're going through. Psalm 71:20. You, he's talking to God, you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. So here's, here's the roadmap for our drive today. It's kind of a strange sermon. Um, 
but I trust it will be helpful. First, I, I want to dispel the notion, if it's crept into your mind, that the disconnection of 2020 is going to deal a devastating blow, an irrecoverable blow to the church by reminding us, oh, this, the scriptures know exactly what we're going through. Indeed, the church has gone through much harder things. So I just want to do away with any thoughts that these times are so strange that the church won't make it through. That's what the enemy wants us to think. That's not true at all. The early church knew about the frustrations of being scattered. We are in very good company. Jesus is still very much on the throne. And then second, I, I want to build on what Pastor Derek spoke about last week as union with God as the goal of our salvation. And I want to do this by meditating together on the beauty of the divine community within the Trinity. And thirdly, I do want us to meditate on the precious gift of our community, the communion of saints, how precious it is and how we can practically care for one another in this strange season right now. So that's where we're headed. So first, can the early church relate to our situation? Or is 2020 in a league of its own and will be an irrecoverable blow? Well, of course, we know the answer. The apostles and the early church knew the challenges, even at times the heart-wrenching challenges of separation and disconnection from each other. They felt it deeply on an emotional and relational point, And they had a total happy warrior confidence in Jesus' sovereignty over all of it. So I want to quickly look at two chunks of scripture and see if we don't find a surprising solidarity with the Apostle Paul here. First, Romans 1, 9 through 13. This is Paul writing, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last exceed, succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. So here we see Paul longing to fellowship with the church at Rome. He knows when they will come together, there will be great mutual encouragement. And he knew that that would happen according to God's will. And far from this allowing Paul's affection to wane for the church or for him to despair about the church. Rather, he says he is constantly praying for them as he eagerly looks to the day that they will be together he didn't see their physical separation as some impossible roadblock for meaningful ministry in between. Like God's like, okay, I guess we'll have to hit pause until you get to Rome. Paul didn't see that at all. He encouraged them however he could. And which, by the way, he happened to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the greatest treatise on the gospel ever written. And we see a similar thing happening in 1 Thessalonians. I love the letter to the Thessalonians here. He says this beginning in 2.17. 
we were torn away. That, that word is literally orphaned. I was orphaned from you brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. This is all on God's watch. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So Paul's alive to the spiritual battle here, even says Satan hindered him, knowing Satan is on a leash that the sovereign Lord holds. Yet Paul here doesn't say, I guess we'll just have to coast for a while. Quite the opposite. He has the expectation that their love will abound more and more, even in this time of being torn away. So let us take heart today, my dear brothers and sisters at the Axis Church. Rest assured that just because things aren't business as usual right now, just because some are separated these weeks, that does not mean for a second that Jesus is not completely sovereign over this season. Be of good cheer and let us fight the drift towards any doomsday discouragement. Fight the drift towards believing scripture can't understand our current situation. The church has experienced hard things for a long time and God is always at work in every season, especially the harder seasons. All right, well, that's the first part of the sermon. And now I want to switch gears a bit, and it's going to feel perhaps a little abrupt, but it's, it's where I felt led to go with our, our time today. Because in all honesty, it's, it's a strange time to preach on community when, for some of us, we aren't able to be in community in the typical way. And so it can be hard to know how to minister best. We exhort to get in community. Yeah, I would like to do that. I wish we could. So how do we find encouragement here? But as I thought of you and, and I thought of this sermon, I thought it would be good for us to marvel together at the fullness of the gospel, which is all about community, but not first about community in the here and now. Rather, the gospel is ultimately about the community that has existed from eternity past. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we are to understand how precious and how sacred our community is, if we're to fight the drift in this season to stay connected and to not become isolated, we would do well to understand our union in Christ and how together we are reunited 
to the triune God. This is the whole point of the gospel, as Pastor Derek mentioned last week. The gospel is not just about not going to hell, which is a good thing. The gospel is not just about forgiveness of sin, which is a wonderful thing. It's not just about giving meaning in this life, which is a glorious thing. The best news in the good news is that we together, we are welcomed back into the eternal triune community of God through our union with Christ. And I believe the more we think on this, the more precious both Christ will become and his bride will become. And I won't have to just exhort you to get in community. We will get caught up in it together as we marvel at what truly unites us. To help us, I want to share an extended quote from a book that Pastor Derek actually gifted to me and read a section from that deeply impacted me. It's called, When God Weeps, Why Our Suffering Matters to the Almighty. And it's by Johnny Erickson Tata and Stephen Estes. Some of you are familiar with Johnny. Johnny and Friends, she's been in a wheelchair for over 50 years, knows something about the hardships of life. And it's interesting how they tether enduring suffering with a soaring vision of the triune God. So bear with me as I read this passage and it'll be on the screens as well. Eternities before the cosmos, before the angels, prior to heaven itself, the one and only God existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has therefore never been alone. Three is one. He draws life and being an ultimate enjoyment from no one but himself. He sustains his own existence and fans the flame of his own emotional life. He is his own best friend. Now the spirit is the quiet one sharing equal deity and status with the others. He nevertheless eternally flows from the father and son. His task is to honor the son by applying to us the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection. The father and son both send him. The spirit doesn't resent this. He has never resented it. The three have eternally agreed to this. It's the Spirit's very nature to point to the Son. He knows exactly how the Son and Father think and burns with love to them. For the three are God together. The Father and Son love the Spirit for this. But in the Bible, it's the Son who commands the center stage. He is God, absolute divinity, on par with the Father and the Spirit in every way. And the father never tires of bragging about him. Here is my chosen one in whom I delight. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. In fact, the two are so close that the son is in the bosom of the father. That is, he is resting his head on his chest as close friends did while reclining on carpets around the low dinner table in the Middle East. The eternal Trinity 
revels together in a swirling dance of mutual love. The Trinity enjoys pleasure beyond comprehension. Friends, is this not glorious to think? This is the truth of the actual God that actually exists right now. Right now, the eternal Trinity is enjoying fellowship, enjoying community with each other. And this is the very God that created us. So with this picture fresh in your mind, let's revisit Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. One God, three persons, his and our in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. You remember last week during the ascension, what did Jesus Christ do? He blessed them. Jesus, always blessing us, ever blessed. This is the beginning. God blessing them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And the man and the woman enjoyed unbroken friendship and community with the triune God. Of course they did. They were designed for that. They were made in his image until they believed a lie and rebelled against God and they sinned. And something interesting happened after that happened, when they saw God the next time or heard him coming, they didn't run towards him. They hid themselves. They could no longer dwell in the presence of the holy because they were unholy. A curse came over the man and he was exiled from Eden and from the intimate fellowship and community within the triune God. And we were all born in this cursed condition in Adam. Look at how the Apostle Paul defines our natural state in Ephesians 4.18. Humanity by default is alienated from the life of God. Alienated from the life of God. This is the central devastating issue for all mankind. This is the birthplace of all sin and all sorrow and every attempt to find satisfaction or acceptance or a chemically induced high or an identity. It's a result of our alienation from God. It's the flailing of a fish swept up to shore outside of the environment it was created for. Our sin cast us out of the Trinitarian communion, which is the fountainhead of all life. And this is what makes the gospel so 
good. The gospel is the grand and glorious Trinitarian plan to redeem the elect back into that communion, to re-holy an unholy people. So when we're in the presence of the holy God now, we feel right at home. This is what we were created for. A minute ago, I read an extended passage from a human author on the Trinity. But now I want to go straight to the source and show you just how deeply biblical and astonishing this reality is. In John 17, this is Jesus' longest recorded prayer. It comes right after the Last Supper and right before his arrest. So just hours before his crucifixion. And in this prayer, the veil between us and the Godhead is pulled back. And we get to listen into a conversation that takes place in the context of the Trinity. And it shows the beating heart of the Trinity and the point of the gospel. So please turn again to John 17. And I want to read through this chapter in its entirety together. Just a few chapters before, Jesus told the disciples that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to them. So we have the Holy Spirit ringing in their ears. And then he says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Because all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Of course, that's Judas Iscariot, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, by the way. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them union with God, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. God loves you as much as Jesus. That's, that's what he just said. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know, know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You think meditating on the Trinity impacts our life together at all? It's a glorious thing, the goal of the gospel, that through Jesus Christ, we may be re-fellowshipped back into the life of God forever. And here, friends, we find what makes our community so precious, so much stronger and sturdier than anything this fallen world can bring against us. This is the foundation of our hope and it is the foundation of our love for one another. Our shared union with God through Christ. And this is what I wanna reflect on by way of conclusion now. See, it's when we understand that we are all caught up back into relationship with the triune God and then we see that you're there also and you're there also, that we love each other in truth. Our 
peripheral differences just fall away when we realize we're caught up in the Trinitarian community together. And notice that First Peter, or Peter in his first epistle, uses this exact logic to encourage saints that are dispersed. Trinitarian foundational logic. He puts them, this before them at the very beginning. Check this out. This is amazing. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia and Gallatin and Hendersonville and Brentwood and Green Hills. Check this out. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Our salvation is a Trinitarian community effort. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So here's what I want to encourage us with. The church has gone through hard things ever since she existed. So as strange as our times are, God is sovereign over it all. And the church in our community is more sturdy and more glorious than we often realize because Christ builds it and we are grounded in the eternal fellowship of the Trinity. So I want us to think this way and I want us to acknowledge that these times do pose a genuine spiritual liability because the church gathered is one of the primary means God encourages us in this. We are the body of Christ to one another. And so when we're disconnected, we need to fight the drift because it will have an impact. It's like the oxygen tube is stepped on for a season. Now this won't take off his throne as Paul's already shown us, but we need to not be blind to that. We need to fight the drift against the riptide of this time. It's seeking to smash us against the rocks of angst and anxiety and isolation and polarization, right? Just fragment everybody and then set social media on fire and see where all that lands. The enemy has a hand in all of that. We must fight the drift. We must care for one another. And this requires creativity and intentionality. So this is the final verse I want us to look at. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Acts is church. That's not in the original, but it's applicable. Let us together hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. So th this is in the context of our life in a way. This is one of their challenges. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this is how I want to end our time. I want to take a few moments to prayerfully fulfill this text, to, to consider how practically 
today and this week, we can stir one another up to love and good works. Who is it that God has placed in your corner of the kingdom to encourage to love and good works? Consider this. Think about it, friends. If 200 of us reach out to three people with this type of intentionality this week, that's 600 people blessed. 800, because we get the blessing of blessing. But we must consider how to do this. Maybe that's taking a family a meal. I know there are some who have had babies during this whole quarantine time and haven't got the meal train. That's usual. It's very hard. Maybe that's seeing a need on realm and saying, that's mine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond to that. Maybe it's sending a Marco Polo prayer or whatever. So I want us to take a minute to collectively, as a community, pray for the community and consider how we might practically, specifically spur one another on to love and good works. So I want to create some space to pray. There'll be a prompt on the screen. And then in a moment, I'll come back and institute communion. But if, if somebody comes to mind, jot that down. This is the Holy Spirit fulfilling Hebrews 10 in us. So let's pray for a moment. Triune God, we confess afresh that you are sovereign over this season, so we are perplexed but not given to despair. And Lord, I pray that not one member of the Axis Church, not one person who's part of our community would, would fall through the cracks, not the enemy have a foothold on a single one of us. I pray that, that you would keep Hebrews 10 in our mind this week, that we would consider not how can I be apathetic, but how can I fight the drift and pursue people in cre creative ways. Help us, Lord. May our love abound even more during this season. In Christ's name, amen. You're listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.